You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School's Business and Environment Initiative. Before we get into today's episode, let me tell you about a new HBS online course called Business and Climate Change that we've just launched. In this five-week asynchronous online course, you'll learn the tools and tactics companies around the world are using to become more resilient to droughts, floods, wildfires, and storms, and how they're engaging in mitigation to reduce their emissions. This course enables you to leverage those insights to inform your own organization's strategy. Learn more and apply at the HBS online website or at hbs.me slash business and climate change. Now, on to Climate Rising. When you're obsessed with carbon and climate change, you spend so much of your day reading about it, learning about it, talking about it. And so any opportunity to infuse a discussion with climate change is, you know, we readily take that on. And so we are uh, hypersensitized to connecting the dots in ways that other people are not. And I do think that's partly why we are able to develop these interesting scalable companies is because we do connect those dots and allow business models to be infused with a climate directive uh, earlier than perhaps they would have been. What do cemeteries, luxury handbags, high quality audio, and selling wheat have in common? If you ask Nancy Fund, all of these can be powerful tools to address climate change. In each, her company sees a thesis for making both strong economic and environmental returns. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School. Over the next few decades, climate change will catalyze far-reaching changes in every sector. From infrastructure to investing, from land use to transportation. This season on Climate Rising, we're zeroing in on all the opportunity out there for people to innovate to discover new business models, to become entrepreneurs in the effort to find solutions to the multiple problems we face with climate change. I'm Rebecca Emanuel, Director of Social Entrepreneurship at Harvard Innovation Labs. I work with current and future entrepreneurs every day. This season, we'll be meeting with people who are starting and financing companies that can address climate change and help us adapt to it. People who are seeing opportunity in places you may never have imagined. And we'll start today with Nancy Fund, founder and managing partner of DBL, or Double Bottom Line Partners, a venture capital firm whose goal is to combine top-tier financial returns with meaningful social and environmental impact. Through her early-stage investments in Tesla and support for companies in sectors from fashion to agriculture, Nancy has shaped the field of impact investing and demonstrated the power of venture capital to address climate change. Double Bottom Line Ventures is known as a pioneering impact investment fund whose highly successful track record in achieving impact and running a profit is a model for many investors. She sees business and impact opportunities where others haven't looked, and her success is proving she's right. In this episode, we'll hear how Nancy applies her trifecta of criteria to identify those opportunities and some of the companies she's excited to be taking bets on now. The way it all happens for us is the early investments in transportation and energy with with Tesla and SolarCity opened our eyes, obviously, to the opportunity to transform industries and and make them clean and make them cost competitive and, and appropriate for the 21st century. 
But it doesn't stop there. Uh, and, and part of our impact practice is, is showing people that impact lives in just about any company you can think of and any sector. And so when you think about uh, cemeteries and luxury goods, the reason that's on our radar, those, those companies like that are on our radar, is because we have this trifecta approach to investing. One, we follow the carbon. And carbon, of course, lives in transportation and energy, but it, it's also a huge part of food and ag. It's, uh, we, we know that um, biodiversity and deforestation play roles in, in carbon. And so looking at conservation is an angle we have, and certainly the circular economy, which is what you're referring to when you talk about our luxury goods company, uh, the real real there you're selling luxury goods online for low prices. Yes. But you're also preventing new products from being the only thing you can buy and you're putting your old goods into multiple economic lives. And it turns out that saves a heck of a lot of carbon and water and, and helps the environment. And people just never thought about it that way. So that's the first part of the trifecta. The second is to, to move the needle, to fix something that's broken. And the third is when you look at a sector and the iconic names are, are 100 years old or more, it's time to invest because many of those um, participants in those sectors grew up and became iconic in the 20th century where they, by definition, optimized for generating carbon. So I'll admit, I'm particularly intrigued by the idea of a VC fund investing in cemeteries as a way of generating your double bottom line of impact and return. How does a burial place of all things embody that trifecta you described? It, it's linked to the conservation. What happens is that cemeteries, the, the, the traditional way of, of uh, burying your loved ones is highly carbon intensive. Uh, it's the embalming fluid, the wood. And so what, what the company we, we've invested in called Better Place Forests has done is to to look at conservation as a way to improve that that experience, the the move into eternity, as we call it, by buying forests, allowing families to buy a tree or a grove of trees, and as they say goodbye to their loved one, as they honor their loved one, they're spreading the ashes on, on at the side of the tree that they bought, and and so in so doing, they're creating. Uh, that tree, that forest is in perpetuity, not, not going to be uh, developed. It's going to stay uh, pristine and preserved. And you're also adding this immensely beautiful, natural experience to a process uh, that, you know, for, for more than hundreds of years, for thousands of years, has been characterized by stone slabs in a graveyard on the corner of a, uh, of a neighborhood in a city somewhere. So, uh, completely redefining this last expression of of community of honoring your your family uh, and turning it into not just uh, a way to 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 do this beautifully, but create a legacy, create a statement that you're you're helping to preserve the earth that your loved one lived in for future generations of your family, and it's important because obviously in terms of our 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 trifecta of moving the needle, we, we need to have scale. And so it's not enough just to do this onesie twosies. We'd like to transform the, the whole industry and make sure that the, there are lots of forests out there that are protected. And for every 
tree that is a that is purchased by a customer, the the company does plant trees in in um, compromised areas where where trees have been threatened. And so it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving in terms of conservation, forest protection, um, and and doing that at scale. And it's a great business too. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, so your three rules have somehow brought you to a space that I, surely no one would previously have said cemeteries are venture backable, <laughs> but somehow you got to a place where this feels like a scale transformative play. So paint a picture for me. I have a particular thing that I'm really curious about, which is that have all of these companies figured out the climate angle to where they're at first, or are they mostly pitching a, a general thing? Yeah, it's it it can be both. It's I mean, some of the companies come in and they know so much more about climate than we do, and we think we know a lot about it. <laughs> uh, I mean, they've got a plan, they've got the data. So in the case of Dan Sugar and the uh, Lyndon and Peter Rive at, at Solar City, they bowl you over with not just enthusiasm, but just a visceral commitment that they are going to do this and and nothing is going to stop them and that it's going to be a big business and that it's the right thing to do. Um, so that, that does happen uh, quite frequently. On the other side of the spectrum that you described, it often is the case that we see something a little earlier than our entrepreneurs do. And because we have a pretty broad lens in terms of impact, uh, for example, the real real, um, you know, the fact that it was a woman CEO, that it was in a low income neighborhood, she was very committed to, and still is, Julie, to, to supporting women. That was kind of our first impact insight about uh, the company. But very soon after we started doing due diligence, and this was many years ago, this was like five or six years ago, we realized, wow, this is a circular economy company. So the real real is this authenticated luxury consignment. People buy verified luxury brands, but they can buy it for far less because they're pre-owned. But she hadn't talked about it as a circular economy company. No. And in fact, she wasn't really interested in it, to be frank, in the early days, which is a, it's a good thing uh, because she was focused on her business and on putting the technology together and the getting the, the supply chain and the customers and all that, as she well should be. But because we have a relationship and we're, work, you know, we're working over the long term, we were able to just continue to talk about it and um, work with Julie to to see that this was a dimension of her company that while it wasn't obvious in the beginning how powerful it would be to, to the value proposition, it would emerge over time. And so that's exactly what happened. And so I would say that you know those two ends of the continuum, uh, we, we play in all the time. And sometimes we're the ones that reveal things uh, that, that relate to climate. And sometimes it's it's fully baked in the DNA of the entrepreneurs. I, I think the consistent trend is that things change as you go along, and you you often uncover uh, climate aspects in in work where you didn't see it. One example of a place you uncovered a climate angle is with the high fidelity audio technology company you invested in. It sounds like your original thesis was to make very high quality sound available to a lot more people. 
How did that turn into a climate thing? We have a immersive audio company that uh, democratizes access to very high quality sound and makes it easy to to switch back and forth in terms of natural sounds or music and such, the kind of stuff that you'd need very expensive equipment to do previously. This is now done with an iPhone, basically. This is, um, you know, part of an, an investment thesis around education and um, the the connecting uh, on an audio level and not just video. I mean, we have a whole impact thesis there. But as soon as we invested, I think a few months later, we found this article in, in a scientific journal saying, wow, um, it turns out that when you're trying to restore coral reefs, the reefs grow back faster if you enhance the sound underwater to make it sound like a healthy reef. And that helps to track the fish back and and just the the pieces you need to reconstruct and rebuild a reef. And so we saw this article and it just everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is like, Amazing. And so we happen to know a, a, a company that's, um, you know, we haven't invested at this point. It's it's pre, uh, it's a little early for us, but they're restoring some coral reefs in the Bahamas and and they had some investors that we knew. And, and so all of a sudden we're connecting our audio company with these guys down in the Bahamas. <laughs> so it sounds like you're willing to take an impact investment thesis that starts not with your three criteria of carbon, but something much broader that could be on equity lens, could be a sort of women-led business lens. And then sometimes your nose leads you somewhere that's unexpected, but often has a climate component. Yes, because when you, you know, it, it shouldn't be that surprising because when you're obsessed with carbon and, and climate change, you spend so much of your day reading about it, learning about it, talking about it. And so any opportunity to infuse a discussion with, with climate change is, you know, we readily take that on. And so we are uh, hypersensitized to connecting the dots in ways that other people are not. And, and, I, and I do think that's partly why we are able to develop these interesting scalable com- companies is because we do connect those dots and allow business models to be infused with a climate directive uh, earlier than perhaps they would have been. Your portfolio includes a wide range of investments that fit your trifecta and address climate change. Yes, solar, but also luxury goods and coffee. To take on climate change, these businesses need to get big. What guides your intuition about the potential for scale? We have this no sacrifice mantra. And so what it is, is a long time ago when Jimmy Carter was was president and there was an energy crisis, uh, you can see this on YouTube, you know, he, he gave this famous speech in the White House and he was wearing a sweater because out of um, recognition that he needed co- to conserve energy, they had turned the thermostat <laughs> down in the White House. And so um, anyway, it's a, it's a very famous speech. And yet it just, it is imbued with the notion of sacrifice. You got it. You got to be cold. You got to wear sweaters in order to be green. We felt from the get-go that that was a non-starter, that you can't build big companies uh, based on people having to sacrifice things they like. I mean, 
that's not the world I live in, maybe someday. So the notion of no sacrifice, uh, and certainly Tesla and, uh, embodies it, and, and you know, all of, many of our companies do, where the notion is you want to do something right for climate. You want to unhinge transportation from, from fossil fuels, because we all know that's, that's a, a big problem. But you also don't want to have a car that goes slowly or you have to charge every 10 minutes, isn't fun to drive. You, you don't want to sacrifice, especially in you know, the Western U.S. and in the U.S. in general, where people are really interested in the driving experience. Love you, their cars. Yeah. yeah. You, you want it to be fun. And so that is what Tesla embodied from the get-go is, okay, this, this is going to be like the best car you've ever driven. Uh, and it's going to change the the paradigm in terms of the impact on climate that the cars have, and and we just see that over and over. The real real is another example of you know your guilty pleasure. You're you know getting some amazing designer handbag that you would never buy full price in the store. You're getting it for cheaper. You know everyone loves a bargain. Everyone loves to splurge uh, and save money. Uh, and yet now you go on the website, you can, you, you can see that you can quantify the climate benefits of using someone else's bag uh, and then perhaps reselling it. Uh, so just everywhere you go, you're, you're able to, um, to experience that progress along climate uh, goals but without having to to sacrifice what what's important to you as a as an individual. So it sounds like this upending sort of businesses that have gotten established and then all of you know all of the sort of ecosystem around that whether that's policy or others is a big part of what you're doing. There's few industries more entrenched than ag. Can you tell me about the Farmers Business Network and the Grow Network? Sure. Sure. Actually, it, we renamed it. It's the uh, Gradable Network. So Farmers Business Network is is uh, one of our portfolio companies. We've been in it since the Series A. They just did a deal with uh, around led by BlackRock this summer, uh, and they they're going to be close to three hundred million in sales this year. So it's it's a big company now. And what they do is they're creating a movement, in, and it's always farmers first. They they aggregate data from farmers who join their network, and they just made it free this week to, to join their network. Um, and so now they have over 14,000 farmers, 40 million acres of data uh, in the heartland, in, mostly in, in the U.S. and Canada, but expanding to other places too. And with that data and all the you know, data scientists they have, they, they just learn things that help farmers do better. They, they learn that you're using too much fertilizer or you're planting your seeds too closely. You should plant fewer seeds further apart, or you shouldn't use that kind of seed. You, sh you should buy this one. It does better in the region that you work in. And just on and on and on, uh, it brings the power of big data to help farmers make better decisions. And the mission of the company is to help farmers and put them first. And so if they, if they see that they're paying too much for seeds in you know, Grinnell, Iowa, and that um, farmers in Ames, Iowa, if, you know, miles away are, are paying 30% less, they correct that. They say, there's no reason why you guys <laughs> pay more. And yet the incumbents, you know, just the way the industry has evolved, 
that has been happening for many, many years. And in, in, in an era where, you know, every penny counts in terms of um, your your revenue as a, as a farmer, you've got to get rid of these inefficiencies. And so that's, so FBN has developed a whole line of businesses that allow farmers to uh, buy products and services uh, at these better prices. And also the company helps them sell their their grain, uh, their products at higher prices. So bringing it back to your three criteria again, here's an example of replacing quite an old way of doing things. So how's this carried out? What's a, what's a business model enabling this to happen? And that's where the gradable network comes in. Uh, this is a, an effort on the, on, on the part of FBN uh, that they're working with companies like Unilever, they're working with the California Air Resources Board, with Poet, which is a big ethanol supplier. And basically, with the data that they have, they can, at the farm level, not at the state level, which is it's kind of useless, that's what the USDA info is, but at the farm level, they can find out what your carbon intensity score is. As a oh, farm. wow. How do they do that? Yeah, they just they crunch through um, a lot of data points, uh, thing, things like um, the the level of transportation on your field, whether you you have cover crops, what tillage practices you use, and and it turns out that there are pretty basic ways you can you can reduce your carbon score, and so what this. What they're doing is they're, it's almost a certification where you can show that your practices have led to your getting a lower score. And now that corn or that soy or the wheat or the, the alfalfa, whatever, whatever it is you're selling, you now can sell it for a higher price uh, because the buyer, uh, whether it's uh you know, poet as an ethanol supplier or a food company that's, you know, making animal feed or cornflakes or whatever, what is very uh, interested in being able to show the customer that we are sustainable. This is low carbon grain. This is not harming the environment in, in the way that you, you traditionally think uh, agricultural, agricultural practices do. And so uh, it just and then on the regulatory side, the the goal is to allow f- um, farmers to get paid more, you know, to give them an incentive for for these practices, um, and and some of the the regulators will be able to allocate uh, benefits, uh, financial benefits to that. So this is just revolutionary when you think about it, because we've always thought of 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 agriculture as a huge environmental um, engine that that has some you know some disturbing parts if you're looking at the long-term carbon profile and this allows you the opportunity by creating incentives for farmers to grow their crops in a, in a low carbon way to take a, a sector which is trillions of dollars and is 30 percent of carbon produced on this planet and transform it transform it into um, a low-carbon industry. And it also sounds like there's something about just decommoditizing ag, because you have to be able to say that this alfalfa is different. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the things, the crazy things that go on, you can grow organic corn or low-carbon wheat, and today you 
when you oftentimes what happens is when it's all transferred to be sold, it all gets it gets thrown in the same silo as traditional grain. I mean, all that effort you went to is totally wasted. And so, uh, just you know, fixing that will 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 solve a lot of problems. So I think that's very important when you think about what what are you investing in. But you're also sort of there as a steward of the company. Surely there are moments that the company itself is just looking at really hard choices. And there's a time where your values would point in one way and the longevity or scale of the company would point in another one. Absolutely. We have always told our investors that if we're in a crisis situation, which you know, we, we were in in 2008, we're in one now, um, you have to take your, your foot off the accelerator for a bit in terms of um, all of the impact work. Not, I mean, some of it is so connected to the business that you don't have to, but if you're in a survival mode uh, and you're, the company's at risk of failing, um, you just have to, you, you know, it's like any triage moment. You've got to focus on near-term efforts to save your company. And I think COVID, you know, you, the, the nimbleness of companies to, to do that is really allowing many companies to survive, but they're not all going to survive. And so the reason that's important is because uh, when you talk about impact, if you don't have scale, you really don't have huge impact in our sector. Can you tell me the story of how you got into the impact investing space? I was a traditional venture capitalist at a, a firm called Hamburg and Quist in San Francisco for many years, start, starting in the um, mid '80s. But before all of that, I worked uh, for Jerry Brown when he was the governor first time. I worked at Stanford Medical School, looking at health policy and innovation. I worked at um, the Sierra Club. I worked at Intel, uh, helping them build innovation policy. So I've always had that thread in, in me to work with the public sector, to work on policy, to work on social change. At the same time, being a venture capitalist, you're, you're working with entrepreneurs who are changing the world, uh, but it you know, traditionally didn't have that social lens. And so what, when it all came together was in about 2002, when I was able to combine the jobs I had at H&Q into one job. And the reason I was able to do that is because a local business organization that we had been involved in for many years, the Bay Area Council, still alive and well, asked us to help them raise a fund that would pay attention to the problem in the Bay Area back then, uh, which is now pretty well known everywhere, is that the same old neighborhoods were getting the jobs and low-income people, low-income neighborhoods were missing out. And so they wanted to correct that and pay attention to place as, as you made investments. And so they asked us to raise a fund that would invest in great companies, but also help them create jobs in low-income neighborhoods. And my boss said, hey, this is, this is a way you could have one job instead of two jobs. And so from where you sit now, where do you see the future of double bottom line ventures? How are the opportunities for impact investing changing now? Yeah. So in the, in the early days, no one paid attention to the kinds of companies that we were investing in because they weren't traditional venture investments and, you know, people just didn't think it was interesting. Once you have some successes, uh, 
and you do get some iconic companies out there, that changes. And at the same time, as the world increasingly is confronting climate change, uh, the, the, the negative aspects of climate change, uh, there's there's just a higher degree of literacy around the world about why we need to do something. And so we have seen a change in the investor interest. And uh, for example, like the FBN story that I just told, which was Kleiner Perkins and DBL in the beginning, has now grown, as I mentioned, BlackRock, a, you know, a very mainstream investor, uh, led the last round, you know, Fidelity, T. Rowe Price are in that company. And and the companies across our portfolio are beginning to attract very large um, mainstream investors in their later stages. And so why is that important? It's because you need the, the support of that kind of an investor to make the transition from a small company to a big company and and to go public. I mean, to have a company go public and have the interest of long-term holders, of, of folks that aren't just going to flip the stock, that are going to invest in research, invest in um, distribution, that's that really gives the public the the ability to invest in in climate improvement you know not you know many people cannot invest in venture capital because of the the risk of, of uh, losing your money and the laws around that but they can invest in public stocks and so we really feel that while not every company needs to go public obviously uh, you, we do need some public companies we need more of them because Without that, you're not going to allow, you know, a school teacher or a fire, uh, you know, a firefighter to invest in companies that they believe in and that that they feel are building a better future. Awesome. That's super powerful. It's almost democratizing the ability to use your money in the areas that you want to have the impact in the world. Exactly. And as, as we say, you know, it's it's important to vote. <laughs> and, uh, it, a timely, a timely um, comment there. But it's also important to vote with your portfolio. And even if that is a small portfolio of, you know, a few stocks and some bonds and such, you can make a difference. Uh, but in order for that to happen, we've got to generate some, some companies for you to invest in. So it sounds like that's a change that you wanted to see in the world that is basically happening. Are there any changes you want to see in the world that we're early in on and that you hope are going to gain traction? Yeah, um, there are so many uh, signs of, of people being aware that their purchasing power is shaping the future. And so things like the accountability, uh, people wanting to know the the workforce practices of a company that they buy their their running shoes from or they want to know the carbon footprint of the the food that they're buying all of that you know it takes it takes some data um and and uh, infrastructure to develop that but that is happening and so i have been very impressed with the growth of awareness and commitment on the part of just the general buying public to um, make sure that they're, they're uh, whatever they buy, they're 
considering climate impact or social justice impact, financial inclusion, whatever it is, uh, those dots are being connected. And I think that movement is extremely powerful. Well, Nancy, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure talking. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Climate Rising. Next time, you'll hear about how a new type of investment tool, special purpose acquisition companies, or SPACs, can help to address some of the toughest problems with transitioning a big company to being green. This episode was made possible by the remarkable collaboration between this episode's associate producer, Anna Sacalariadis, HBS class of 2020, producer Mary Dew, and our team from the HBS Business and Environment Initiative. Faculty Chair Mike Toffel, Jennifer Nash, Lynn Schenk, and Elise Clarkson. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Rebecca Emanuel. This is Climate Rising, a podcast produced by the Business and Environment Initiative at Harvard Business School. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We love reviews. You can also find show notes and links to resources discussed on this episode on the Climate Rising homepage. That's climaterising.hbs.edu.